Y'all come on in. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Uh, we do Jerry today, um, St. Jerome. This guy actually did not seem to have much of a sense of humor. So just in case uh, the Catholic Church is correct and that there is a communion of saints and he is uh, uh, conscious of what we're doing right now, I should not call him Jerry. He's probably going to haunt me. Um, St. Jerome. Uh, is who we are covering today. Okay. St. Jerome. Um, We are in the late 300s, the early 400s. This is an exciting time to be studying any kind of history, especially church history, because there were huge changes happening in the world. The Roman Empire, which had been uh, uh, the predominant political force for the civilized world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is really uh, uh, dissolving in a lot of ways. The 400s is when we'll see Rome sacked by the Goths in 410. Uh, The mid-400s is when Attila and the Huns come sweeping across Europe, uh, creating a lot of uh, 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 havoc and and fright and fear on behalf of people. Uh, The 400s are when you see the Romans, uh, uh, actually the late 300s, about 397 or something, the Romans pulled out of England and so uh, uh, the Angles, Anglo, Angles and the Saxons and others start uh, going in and invading England, and, and England takes a different slant. The 400s is when you start seeing uh, dialect differences start uh, to crop up as the Germanic tribes start moving in, and, and uh, uh, society took a decided bent. A lot of historians will say it's in the 400s that we really technically entered the Middle Ages, uh, if you will. Um, So uh, as we move towards studying this aspect of church history, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, There are some loose ends I've not done a good job uh, uh, covering so far that I need to pick up somewhere, somehow. I'll try and do those as well. But uh, the personalities of some people that that, uh, must be covered are in this time period. One of them is Jerome. If you see some paintings of St. Jerome, occasionally you will see a painting like this. Uh, This is uh, St. Jerome who is pulling the thorn out of a lion's paw. And uh, in the medieval times, uh, the mid-Middle Ages, around 1,000 or so, there was a a myth, the fable that uh, went out about St. Jerome, that while St. Jerome was in Palestine and and, uh, the desert area, that a lion came out and Jerome pulled the the thorn from the lion's paw and the lion became uh, his peaceful uh, servant. In fact, uh, Jerome set the lion out and told the lion to guard the donkeys. Uh, which worked real good till one of the donkeys wound up being missing. Uh, the other uh, monks at the monastery went to Jerome and said, you're no count lion, ate one of the donkeys he's supposed to be guarding. Jerome calls the lion in, chews him out. The lion submissively uh, uh, says, okay, fine, uh, but then ultimately goes out and finds the donkey from whoever had stolen him, brought him back, and all the priests felt real sorry. Okay, now, there's absolutely no basis for that in reality, but it was a really cool story that was built up around Jerome, so sometimes he gets painted pulling some thorn out of a lion. But the truth about St. Jerome is so good, we don't need to go to the myths. The truth itself is good. Jerome is a fascinating guy. We've got a lot of his stuff in writing. He's one of these men who's absolutely brilliant. How many of y'all have known someone in your life who's really, really smart and brilliant. I did. His name was... Now that these are going on the Internet, I'm not sure I should use these kinds of names. Um, His name was Bob Rust. Bob was just real, real, real smart. I mean, he's one of these guys that you meet, and I met him in college, and he may be the smartest guy I've ever met. Uh, Nothing personal against all of you that I've met, uh, but (laughs) Bob was, like, incredible. I mean, he was just kind of, like, scary smart. Now, how many of you, and this is not Bob, Bob was a very good, kind man and very even balanced, but how many of you have ever met, and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but you ever met someone who's smart, who has some real personality disorders that go along with it? Uh Um, I probably should not, uh, 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 well, I'll leave that alone. Um, 
I think Jerome, this is just me, Mark Lanier, lawyer, you know, no knowledge, no training. I think this guy had like some personality disorders. And, and it's really interesting to read. He had a hot temper, I expect. I don't think he was a very patient man in some ways. And you read his writings and it's weird. Sometimes his writings show great patience and great love and great compassion and great self-control and great gentleness. And other times it's just kind of like he's really ticked off and you can tell he's really ticked off and he's not giving it time to simmer. He's firing out his response and nobody better be in his way because uh, uh, there's nothing that's going to stand in his way. He's blazing right through. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of all of these personality issues, in the midst of all of these difficulties he might have as a, as a social person, St. Jerome is one of the four doctors um, of, that the Western Church cites. By the Western Church, they're mainly the Roman Catholics, what I mean. But even within the Protestant tradition that came out of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, within that part of the Western Church... Among the church fathers, Jerome is one of the four doctors. Now, by that, I don't mean that he was a medical doctor. He's not Dr. John, okay, or Barhorst, or one of the other medical doctors we have in here. Um, what he is, let's name them first, St. Ambrose. We had a class on Ambrose, you'll recall. I think Charles Mickey taught it. Ambrose was the one who baptized Augustine. Uh, uh, Ambrose was the Bishop of Milan in the late 300s. Ambrose is one of those. St. Augustine, or Augustine if you're not Catholic, um, uh, is a second one of the doctors of the church. And we spent, I think, two weeks on him. Uh, one of my favorite guys, I will tell you this. I've read some selected works of St. Augustine, but of his 144 works that we still have in English, I've decided I'm reading every one of them. I want them in chronological order and I want to read them because this guy so fascinates me in his, his theology, his understanding, his gentle heart, his humility, his sin, his respect for God, his understanding of salvation through the cross of Christ. I find him fascinating. If you weren't here for those classes, when Steve gets the internet up and working, which should be this week, uh, uh, you, you have a chance to download those lessons or, uh, and listen to them either uh, audibly or, or read them visibly. Incredible doctor. Jerome is the third doctor, so we're going to cover him. The fourth doctor we haven't gotten to yet, and that's Gregory the Great. And we'll get to him. He's in the 600s. But these are the four doctors. Now, they're not medical doctors. They're called doctors because of the benefits they brought to the church. Okay? So the church... Western Church recognizes four men who brought such great benefit to the church that they have a special title, a title of doctor of the church. And uh, uh, that's who it is. Now, what I'd like to do with Rome is give you a little bit of his background. But in addition to his background, we're going to talk about some of the works he did and some of his writings that we have and why he merits that title of being a doctor and why I think the truth is good enough. You didn't need to come up with this bogus story about some lion and his paw eating the donkey that he didn't eat, that he protected, that he found, that he humiliated the monks over. Okay? You're with me. St. Jerome was born. Uh, we're not sure, but he's exactly where we think it's modern uh, uh, Polji. I have no clue how you say that. Let me see if I can bring this down just a little bit. I will tell you that Dara edited the lesson yesterday, and she sent the email out to Philip and I and said, okay, here's the lesson. It's ready to go. But on spell check, whatever the name of that town was, sure didn't show up, and... I did an internet search and can't find that a town like that even exists, so I suspect that Mark has to look at it and decide. Okay, we're going to do it. Well, that's sort of better. Is that... Okay, this is... Uh... That's close enough? Yeah, but the... Ouch! That light gets you. Um, I want to be able to see the bottom, too, because... All right, that's good enough. So anyway, um, he's born in Strido. And Strido, we know, is in this region here in the yellow because he tells us. He tells us uh, what it's on the border of. So I've blown that up a little bit. Uh, most scholars seem to think it's modern Grahavapologizistan. Um, 
But uh, uh, what that is at this point is just a few huts on the side of the road near Bosnia and Herzegovina, which I'm too, uh, uh, I'm old enough to think of it as, that used to be Yugoslavia, okay? Um, so uh, in what used to be Yugoslavia, around 345, he's born, and we think it is right about there, Okay? Around 345. At the time, this is a Roman province. In fact, it's a pretty important Roman town called Strido or Stridon. And, and as a Roman town, it, it had a good population and it was pretty significant. Uh, uh, it, you know, this down here is Greece. Macedonia and Greece is right down on this lower, for you, right-hand corner. And, of course, Italy's there, which means that it's likely growing up that uh, uh, Jerome would have spoken a good bit of Greek and a good bit of Latin. He went to school locally until the age of 12, and I can imagine him running into the schoolhouse and the teacher saying, come on, class, let's work on our Latin, and he could have very easily said, that's Greek to me, because it's one of my dad's old jokes, actually, so that's tribute to my father. He picked me up one day from uh, school. I had been in, in uh, Greek class, and he picked me up to give me a ride, and he said, well, what class did I get you from? I said, Dad, I just had Greek, and he says, you know, when I was in the Navy, I decided I was going to learn at least one sentence in every language there is. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, just uh, one sentence, and he said, and I, and I pretty much did it every language except Greek, and, and he said, that's you know, I wish I'd learned something in Greek. And I said, you did not. He says, yeah, I really did. I said, all right, give me some Russian. He said, that's Greek to me. Um, yeah. So anyway, Jerome likely grows up. He learns street Latin. He learns street Greek. He's not real probably proficient in either. But at age 12, coming from a wealthy family, his folks had the money to send him to boarding school, in essence. They sent him off to Rome. Said, here... Take your best friend and you two go to Rome and learn uh, the classics, learn rhetoric. Get yourself ready to be some really zinger of a profession like a lawyer. And so uh, off he goes to Rome to work on these types of things. Rome, of course, being down there in the boot of Italy. Uh, while he's at Rome, he spends a lot of time and finds a great affinity for the Latin language. Uh, 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 you know, we've got Justin Harless, a Latin scholar in this class, and, and I studied enough Latin to tell you that he can't read that any more than I can probably. We can pick out certain words, but that old Latin, the way they wrote it, was really tough. But uh, uh, Jerome studied Latin, and he studied it, studied it under a fellow named Aelius Donatus. And Aelius Donatus was like the premier Latin teacher. Okay, He was to Latin... Like, uh, okay, name some like big-time teacher in some subject that's world-famous forever and ever. Okay. Huh? Plato. Like Plato to philosophy. Like uh, Einstein to physics, even though he probably didn't teach it. Like uh, Stradivarius to a violin. I mean, this guy produced, Donatus produced the Latin grammar in the 400s that for the next thousand years is the way anybody who was going to learn Latin learned Latin. It was the grammar for Latin. And that was uh, the teacher of uh, Jerome. And Jerome was a star pupil. Jerome learned his Latin real well and loved Latin. He loved reading it. He loved Latin literature. One of the best Latin writers was a guy named Cicero who gave speeches that are still, you can read them in English, they're just incredible speeches. And uh, 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 that was a favorite of Jerome. He would read Cicero's speeches. While in Rome, at the age of 19, Jerome was baptized. Uh, Jerome uh, had been brought up in a Christian home, but uh, his faith seemed to grow on him as his years grew on him. Um, at the age of 20, Jerome moves, and he goes from Italy up to uh, a place that's really, it's uh, near Trier, Germany. It's called Treves at the time, or Trewis. Um, and it's up right up there, north of Switzerland, up in modern Germany, uh, uh, on the Rhine River. And while he was there, uh, here, that's a Roman ruin there that's still present in Trier, Germany. Uh, here's another one. While he was there, Jerome really grew in his Christian convictions. He spent time translating 
and copying uh, uh, church manuscripts. Remember, they didn't have good Xerox machines then. Uh, the quality was really poor, and so a lot of times uh, people would just hand copy things. Uh, uh, they were still running a little short on carbon paper. Office Depot was nowhere to be found. And so uh, uh, he sits there and for a job, uh, for work, for, you know, you get your kids home from college. They're looking for that summer job, some way to make ends meet. His early job, nobody was going to hire some 20-year-old lawyer out of, out of Rome who was a Latin scholar more than anything else. So he got a job copying. He'd copy uh, uh, commentaries and he'd translate and copy. And that's what he did. Well, in the process... He got caught up in a community of ascetics. Now, ascetics are people who live very careful, stringent, frugal lives. A famous ascetic statement is, uh, 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 anything that you eat that you don't need is something you have stolen from the poor. Yeah, that's a, I don't like that statement. Um, and this was something that really impressed Jerome. And Jerome decided that this was his life, that he needed to live a life where he didn't feed himself and he didn't feed his pleasures and he didn't feel his, feed his uh, 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 personal consumption. But instead what he did is he sacrificed so that extra money could go to the poor. Pretty impressive. It's, a, it's an impressive lifestyle. In fact, he had a wonderful saying. He said, uh, when the stomach is full, it's easy to talk of fasting. And, and he's right. I, I, I take my own derivation of it. I find it easiest to contemplate and make these incredible decisions about dieting right after I have pigged out. Now, after you've eaten the deluxe meal of choice is the best time to say, you know, I really do need to start losing some weight. I think I'm going to quit putting it off and I'm going to start a diet. Then you can forget about it until the next time you eat a whole bunch. But uh, 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 he recognized, Jerome recognized, that you really need to buckle down and you really need to pay attention to how you're living during the, the, the hard times, not just during the easy times. And so uh, this is what he did. He hung around for a while, but he didn't stay there. I've had to change our map here because that earlier map didn't have every place we needed to go. See, so we're going to pick it back up. He started out over here in uh, Strido. He goes to Rome. He goes up here to Treves, uh, Germany. And then he starts heading over to where, over here to modern Turkey, uh, to where Bithynia and, and these places where Paul did missionary work and where, uh, the, you know, Galatia, the Galatian churches and all, and where Peter wrote First and Second Peter to. Uh, ending up over here in this last little dot I just did right there in Antioch, which was the first center for the church outside of Jerusalem. If you remember 26, 27 weeks ago when we started, 28 weeks ago when we started this course. While in Antioch, some things happened to Jerome, one of which was he became deathly ill. He got a fever. His fever was so bad it had spread to the rest of his body. Uh, uh, Jerome writes about it in a letter. And uh, uh, Jerome at this point in time was living the life of an ascetic, except for he kind of had one little uh, thing he could never give up. He could never give up reading his, uh, what he would consider, trash novels. We wouldn't consider them that. For us, they're classics like Cicero. But he just loved to read that stuff. And so, you know, he'd have his Bible and he'd be doing his Bible study, but he'd also have like trashed away or stashed away his uh, trash reading. Okay? This is what he did. This was his, uh, his escape time, if you will. So he becomes deathly ill. And while he's ill, let's go to his words for what happened. He says, while the old serpent, that's Satan, was having sport with me, a fever attacked my body. It was so bad, I left this part out, it's in your written text, that it, it, it spread to all parts of his body. Preparations for my funeral were made. They thought he was going to die. And suddenly, I was caught up in the spirit and dragged before the tribunal and the judge. 
tribunal in the sense of three judges. He was a Trinitarian. So he gets up there and he has a vision or something. He says, caught up in the spirit. We don't know if that's a vision or what it is, but, or he's dreaming or he's, you know, he's out of it. But in his vision, he's caught up in front of the judge. And upon being asked my status, what are you? I said, I'm a Christian. And the judge said, liar. You're devoted to Cicero. You're, actually, it says, you're a Ciceronian. Not Christ. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And your treasure's in Cicero. Your treasure's in your trash. You rush home to read the book. For us, it'd be, you rush home to watch the TV, not to do the service of God. So don't sit here and tell the judge that you're a Christian. Because that's not where your heart is. Your heart's where your treasure is and you've stored up your treasure in Cicero. So at that point he says, uh, okay, that's scary. Um, you know, I mean, this is the guy who's already living an aesthetic lifestyle. Okay, so I mean, if that's the worst thing you got on him, that's pretty good. But he's, he's not happy with it. So he gives up Cicero, says, I'm going to give up all of my trash reading. I'm going to spend the rest of my time really... In, in life, really digging down and, and burrowing down into the Word of God. So Jerome has taken up learning Hebrew because he wants to add Hebrew to what he's got. And he starts doing it. He adds Hebrew, but not only Hebrew, while he's over here, he starts hanging out with some of the Cappadocian fathers. We're in the late 370s right now. And the Cappadocian fathers are getting ready, uh, are, are, are impressive. And, and, and one of them in particular comes to the Council of Constantinople in 381 where they finally put to rest, if you'll recall, the heresy about Jesus not being the Son of God eternal, um, uh, uh, pre-existent eternal. I don't want to get bogged down in that. If you were here for that class, you'll remember that. If not, hopefully. If not, don't worry about it. The bottom line is... Jerome goes to that council that sets up and establishes and really puts to rest the heresies around the Trinity. And he's there and really helps out in the Trinity. After that, he returns to Rome. So he comes back over here. I worked on that. It does it twice. Watch. <laughs> then it just kind of sits there. It took like five minutes. It was worth watching. Yeah, it's a, it a new trick. Um... He returns to Rome. Now, at the time in Rome, let's get caught up. The Roman bishop at this time was Damasus I. He's called Damasus I because in the 1000s, you're going to get another pope called Pope Damasus II. Okay? Um, Damasus I, he didn't call himself the first because he didn't know what was coming down the pike at five, six hundred years later. He just called himself Damasus. But Damasus is the bishop of Rome. Now, the, when Damascus came into power, there had been quite a struggle because uh, some folks elected a different bishop than Damascus. And so there was a fight over who was going to be the real bishop and all. And it was a big struggle. Uh, uh, we'll get into that maybe a little bit when we start talking about the, the, the development of the, the, what we understand to be the Roman Catholic Church in its structure today. Um, but uh, the Roman bishop was Damasus. Damasus was uh, an interesting bishop. He was real involved in the catacombs in Rome. If you'll recall, uh, in Rome, Rome has a kind of a rock that uh, uh, it's built on, which if you take it and you grind it up and mix it with lime, serves as mortar with the bricks. And so Rome was built by and large with bricks and, and the, the need for the mortar was huge. And so there'd be lots of, of minings and digs going on to take this stuff. Some of it was, was not as, as granular. It was more semi-granular. And out of this, it was fairly easy to dig. And this is what folks would dig in underground and uh, they, by either by going into a hill or going down stairs or making stairs and digging into the ground and they would dig out underground cemeteries in the early church christians were not cremated they were buried the reasoning in the early church was there's going to be a bodily resurrection and so it's very important that if you're going to have a bodily resurrection you take care of the body so they had a different mindset. We've developed our mindset from them by uh, hundreds of years. 
In their mindset, the physical resurrection meant you took care as best as you could of the physical body. If you couldn't, if you were burned at the stake like some of the martyrs, you'd still try and gather the ashes, try to gather the bones. In fact, martyrs and, and, and holy people were so revered that, that they not only would be taken care of as dead people, but a lot of people would want to be buried next to them. The idea being the Lord comes back, the dead in Christ rise. I'd like to be standing there next to uh, St. Peter. You know, or I'd like to be standing. Now, I had a friend growing up who said, no, nah, he wanted to be buried next to atheists. I said, why? He said, so I can say, aha! <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the mindset of these people was, and, and, and in fact, one of the big things about the church that the church got uh, written up for, one of the reasons supposedly the church grew so much, is regardless of how much money you had, even the poorest of the poor that could never get a Roman burial, the church would bury and give a Christian burial. Ambrose, one of the four doctors, wrote and said, if you need to sell a holy vessel of the church to have enough money to bury a poor person, you do it. Because it counts. That's, that's the burying the poor person right in Christ is more important than having a silver goblet to serve communion out of. So, uh, um, so Pope Damasus, for example, he goes down and, and this is, you can go in the catacombs in Rome, you can find, this is called the tomb of the popes. It's in St. Callista's catacomb. And, and the tomb of the popes has got like, I don't know, 10 or so bishops of Rome in it from the 200s on up to Damascus. And Damascus would like write these little poems and stuff that would get put on the tombs. He uh, really worked hard at, at uh, doing that kind of stuff. So Damascus is the bishop of Rome, significant bishop of Rome, and he needs a secretary. Guess who he hires? Oh, he hires Jerome. He says, Jerome, let me tell you one of the things I want you to do. I want you to translate the Bible, the Gospels, the four Gospels, into Latin. Latin at this point is what most everybody speaks, at least in Rome. It's the most common language. It'd be like uh, 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 us going to a country or us living in America and not having an English Bible, really, a good one. And so the Pope says, or, or the bishop says, I want you to translate the Gospels into Latin. All right. And this, by the way, is the dedication page, the first page where uh, Jerome dedicates it to Damascus and says, you urge me to revise the old Latin version. This is a labor of love. Now, we need to digress for a minute and make sure we're all on the same page about Scripture and, and what's happened to it since it was originally written. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, right? Um, two or three hundred years before Jesus, Jews in Alexandria translated it into Greek. So we call the Greek translation of the Old Testament the Septuagint. Very good. The church itself started using the Septuagint because the church was originally a Greek-speaking, Greek-writing body. So much did the church use the Septuagint. In fact, it's the Septuagint translation that makes it clear that Jesus is born of a virgin and not just a young lady. That the Jews quit using the Septuagint. They wrote it off and said, hey, that's just some Christian book, even though the Jews had translated it before Jesus was ever born. So the Septuagint is the book here that's being used, if you will, by the church. But, well, let's pause for a minute. The New Testament, it was written in Greek. Good. There was never an official Latin translation of the New Testament. But here's the difficulty you've got. While when the New Testament was written, you know, Paul writes his letter to the Roman church. The Roman church is located in the city of Oh, yeah, Constantinople and Rome. Right? That's why it's called Romans. But he writes it in Greek. He doesn't write it in Latin. 
Because Greek was still the basic language of the people. It was the language of commerce. It was the language of transaction. At the time of the New Testament, Latin's still kind of a scruffy language of the uneducated. Greek is the language of the educated world. But by the time you've transitioned into two or 300 A.D., all of a sudden, Latin, at least in the West, is the principal language people are using. Now, you're a missionary or you're a preacher and you've got a church and your church speaks primarily Latin and you've got Christian scriptures, what are you going to do? Well, what do you do? You translate them. You think on the PowerPoint, when they were doing their PowerPoint slides, they'd be putting it up in Greek for the congregation to read? No. They'd have some... Mark Lanier on a Saturday morning up at four in the morning trying to translate it into Latin so that the congregation could understand it the next day when he did it. Um, and so what you wind up doing is you get a bunch of kind of renegade, loose Latin translations of the Bible that are floating around. Doesn't that make sense? All right, well, Jerome says, or is told by Damasus, enough of this, we need an official Latin version, at least, of the Gospels. So would you go back and, and take that old Latin, which was all stilted anyway, and do it into just the common Latin of the street? Translate the Gospels and go and check all the different versions, get all those old Latin manuscripts you can, get the Greek manuscripts, because Jerome knows Greek. And, and write us up a really good translation into common everyday Latin that the everyday person can do. This is like the birth of the first NIV. We want something that's clean and clear. Take it out of that King James Latin and put it into everyday Latin, would you please? And so Jerome does. Jerome uses vulgar, which is the Latin word for common, Latin. Huh? The Vulgate is what it's ultimately called. You know, let's speak Latin. Um, vulgar means common in Latin. And so this becomes the Vulgate Scriptures. And ultimately, Jerome translates the entire Bible into vulgar Latin. And when Jerome does it, Jerome doesn't just take all the old Latin manuscripts and start uh, trying to figure out who had the best translation. Jerome will go back and check the Greek. And when Jerome... Oh, this was shocking. When Jerome translated the Old Testament, do you know what he used to translate it with? He used the Jewish scriptures. He did not go to the Greek Septuagint. In fact, Augustine writes a letter gently chiding him, urging him to use the Greek scriptures because Augustine and others were convinced that God was behind that Greek translation. I've got to tell you, we have this problem today. We may not have it here. In my uh, uh, biblical studies, I had a professor. I was at a school where the professor was required to teach out of either the old King James Version or the old American standard, which still has the these and the thous. Nothing in common language. And my professor for one class, who was my major professor, he was a wonderful man. His name was Dr. Harvey Floyd. Dr. Floyd um, uh, uh, was the Greek professor at this school. And uh, uh, Dr. Floyd was teaching, I don't remember which class it was, but it was in some class on some New Testament something or another. And and uh, Dr. Floyd would quickly identify which students had brought in which version of the Bible. Because as students, we could have whichever version we would want. And uh, there was a, 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 a... I, for example, used a revised standard version at the time. And so I would be out there with that. Some people had the NIV, which was fairly new at the time. And Dr. Floyd would call, Floyd would call on whoever he wanted. He'd say, Ray, would you please read for us Romans 3.16? Because he'd know Ray had it in the NIV, and he wanted the NIV to be read to the class. It was very rare for Dr. Floyd to read anything himself. Now, there was a small contingency of people who didn't take Greek and didn't like Dr. Floyd and thought he was a renegade and wanted to get him fired. 
So they were always trying to trip him up on something. And one of these young renegade men, uh, this is the kind of student who would like, he's 19 years old and he would carry a briefcase on campus, okay? Um, this young student one day, Dr. Floyd said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, and Dr. Floyd spoke with this incredible affectation to his voice that made us know he was holy. Um, <laughs> Dr. Floyd said, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ. You know, and he goes through Galatians 2.20 or something. And this smarmy little briefcase carrying toady holds up his hand and says, Excuse me, Dr. Floyd. I have in front of me the King James Version and the Old American Standard Version, and I'm having trouble following you. Could you please tell me which of the two versions you are using? Dr. Floyd looks at him and says, Ooh, ooh, that's a very good question. Ah, ooh, what version? Ah, What version am I using? Let me see here. And he flips it over and he looks. He says, hmm, uh, what doesn't help me. And I, I, don't, uh, whew, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, uh, why, why, why don't you come up here and uh, why don't you tell the class which version I'm reading from? So the little guy gets up, just picks up his briefcase and walks up to the front thinking, I'm going to be the one who got Dr. Floyd fired. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. And he walks over and he looks down. Well, Dr. Floyd only read out of the Greek. So, I mean, the guy's got a Greek New Testament right there. And Dr. Floyd just reads Greek as well as he does English, so he's just up there freelance and translating. Students said, uh, well, uh, Dr. Floyd, this is Greek. Dr. Floyd said, yes, yes it is. That wasn't my problem with your question. Uh, I guess we should say I was using uh, Paul's version. Could we just say that? Dad took his briefcase. He dropped that course. Um, I got to tell you, Jerome got in trouble. Everybody's writing Jerome. What's wrong with the old versions? Why are you trying to put this into common language? It doesn't carry the aura. doesn't carry the mystique. Does It's not the translation of our fathers. And I'm telling you, Old, uh, when some of this reaches the ear of Jerome, he fires off a letter that says, you know, I could hold these people in contempt because what they're doing is contemptible. Who wants to play a harp in front of a donkey anyway? He says, but I'm not going to. Instead, let me just say this. I'm using the Hebrew and Greek originals for my translation. And if someone doesn't want to drink water that comes from the crystal clear stream, then they're welcome to drink from the muddy stream instead. That's their choice. He says, but I'm going to the source, the spring that gives the crystal clear water. And if they just want to sit over there and drink some mud water from a muddy streamlet, so be it. That was his response. Now, when Jerome translates the Old Testament, he does not include the Apocrypha. Because the Apocrypha is not in the Jewish scriptures. For the Jews, the Apocrypha... So you don't get a Latin translation with the Apocrypha. It's in the Catholic Bibles today. The Catholic Church puts it back in at a later date. If you went and found the bones of Jerome, though, they've probably flipped over (laughs) in his little catacomb thing. Because he specifically says, "These, these are hidden books in the sense that they're not found in the Jewish Scriptures. And he didn't translate them. Uh, The Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible, takes over. It becomes the official version of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, uh, And it's interesting. It it was written in common everyday language, but it became uh, archaic itself as language moved on. But it doesn't matter. If we fast forward to Gutenberg, the first book Gutenberg printed we believe, may have been the Bible. It was a real toss-up. 
He was either going to print the Bible, which would have been Jerome's Vulgate, or do you know what his other choice was? You remember I told you Jerome's old Latin teacher, Donatus, had written the Latin grammar of all grammars? That was Gutenberg's other choice for which one to print first. And it looks like he probably printed the Bible first and then the grammar. But some scholars think he probably printed the grammar first just to get enough money because that would sell real easy to then print the Bibles and generate the income. Now, um, you're saying, what does this have to do with us? Well, who knows the word congregation? That's one Jerome made up. See, there were lots of words Jerome couldn't come up with a good Latin word for from the Greek or from the Hebrew. So he'd kind of put these words together. And in English now, some of Jerome's words have made it into our Bibles that don't really have a basis outside of Jerome's Bible. The word congregation, now it's a present word that's used in English in all aspects, but it came from Jerome's Vulgate. And that's not the only English word we have that we get from the Vulgate. Conversion. Exhortation. Justification. Ministry. And Calvary. Um, now, Jerome also, in addition to this, wrote commentaries. They're pretty good, uh, the little bit I've read. Um, in addition to commentaries, he wrote letters. He wrote lots and lots and lots of letters. And I find them really interesting because, let me tell you about some interchange. If you go to, uh, uh, let's see, do I have a picture of it? Hold on. Yeah, let's go backwards. Boom, 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 boom. See that? painting. Okay. That's a fresco. It's painted into the plaster on the wall of a church in Florence, Italy uh, at uh, Onisanti or whatever. It's, it's uh, like Italian for all saints, I think. Um, it was painted in 1480 by an artist named Girlandio. Girlandio. I don't know how you say his name because my Italian is limited to spaghetti and lasagna. But <laughs> I know how to say those. Um, I can do pesto. Um, this guy paints these in uh, the early 14 or late 1400s, I think around 1480, and he's got two frescoes in this church in Florence. One of them is here. It's what you see here. It's Jerome. The other is one of the other doctors of the church, Augustine. Now, as hot-tempered and as angry a person as Jerome could be, Augustine seems to be the exact opposite. Jerome was a little bit older. Augustine was a little bit younger. Jerome had been secretary to the Pope. In fact, bless his little, Matt, I say, arrogant heart. He thought he was going to be the next Pope after Pope Damasus because while secretary to Pope Damasus, everybody oohed and awed over him. He says, you know, I was just so popular. Everybody loved me. Everybody thought I was great. And then when the Pope died... All of a sudden, I wasn't so popular anymore. In fact, that's why he leaves Rome. And he ultimately goes to Palestine where he camps out in, in uh, uh, the Holy Lands and uh, spends the rest of his life basically working on translating Scripture, especially the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, but while in the Holy Lands, he's still considered a heavy hitter. You know, This is a guy who was at the council at Constantinople. This is a guy who was secretary to the Pope. Uh, this is a guy who was like a major hitter, right? <clears throat> Meanwhile, there's Augustine. Augustine comes late to Jesus. He's in his 30s when he's converted. Augustine's first, you know, or one of his, his major works, not his first, but one of his major works is his confessions where he starts listing all of his sins. Augustine winds up being, in the minds of most people, the second most important person in the theological development of the church behind only Paul, the apostle himself. At least until Martin Luther comes along. And maybe even past Martin Luther. Because Luther based so much of what he said on what Augustine had written. But uh, uh, Augustine then... So here are these two titans and they're in this fresco of this church. You've got... Jerome up there, you've got uh, uh, Augustine. Well, you know what Augustine does? He has letters written back and forth with Jerome. Okay? 
Let's go to one of them. The first letter. Augustine gets a copy of Jerome's commentary on the book of Galatians and finds some things in it that are quite good, but also finds what, Jerome belie- or what Augustine believes to be heresy. Um, he, uh, Augustine says, you know, the way you've written this, it's as if uh, there's a mistake in the Bible, and the Bible's inerrant and it doesn't have mistakes, and you can't say that this was glossed over in the way Paul recounted the story just to make things look a little bit better for the readers. He says you can't do that. If you want to start saying anything's glossed over, then how can you believe any of the Bible? The integrity of Scripture is at stake. And the way he writes it, I've sort of put it into linear speak. I've got, I think, the real language there in your uh, handout. But in linear speak, old hot-tempered Jerome gets this letter from Augustine that says, You're a super saint. You're a great holy man. I can't believe I'm even writing you. can't wait to see you face to face. I've never seen you face to face, but I know what you look like because I've read all of your writings and you're just an absolutely incredible godly man. It's an honor that you'd read my letter. Now, having said that, you've got heresy on the second chapter in Galatians. <laughs> and it's destructive and can destroy the whole church. Would you please rewrite that section on Paul and Peter? Thank you very much. Very truly yours, Augustine. That first letter doesn't quite make it for some reason to, to uh, Jerome. So Augustine writes him a second letter. Says, uh, hey, I've come across something else you've written that's really, really good. But it reminds me, you never got my last letter where I pointed out in your Galatians commentary, you have heresy that's going to ruin the church. So would you please rewrite that? Please let me know when you will at your earliest convenience. Very truly yours, Augustine. That second letter doesn't directly make it, but somehow word gets to Jerome, that Augustine's like uh, telling the world uh, Jerome's a heretic. So Augustine writes Jerome, uh, I mean, Jerome writes Augustine and says, okay, uh, looks like uh, people are saying you said this about me. Now, I'm assuming you're smart enough not to ever say I wrote heresy. But, you know, the way they say it, it does sort of sound like something you'd have said. And the logic sounds like yours. But far be it from me to judge you based on hearsay. Because I'm sure you never would have said that. Because I'm sure you realize what might happen to you if you actually do say something like that to me. Do not, because you are young... Challenge a veteran in the field of Scripture. I've had my time, yeah. I've run my course, and it's fair that I should rest while you, in your turn, run. Every dog has its day. I've had mine, and your day may be here. But at the same time, let me remind you, the tired ox treads with a firmer step. Think about it. I may be a tired old ox, But I'm very deliberate and I will grind you under my foot. I put that into Lanier speak. This is the vulgar translation for us. Don't challenge me on the Bible, boy. I may be old. You may be in your prime. But I am deliberate and I'm no man's fool. You cross me at your own peril. It's a pretty stout letter. You can read these letters. Uh, it's neat. They continue to correspond over the next 20 or 30 years. And by the time they're done, it looks like uh, Jerome actually agrees with Augustine on the Galatian issue. And by the time they're done, they're very good friends. And they have a loving allegiance not only to God, but to the work of Christ as they confront together various heresies. And it's really neat to read through those letters and see how the friendship grows. Points for home. In wondrous ways, God has given his people understandable scriptures. There are available to us, just as God made available to 5th century Latin speakers... Common language scriptures that we can read, that make sense, 
that God has made available to us. God has seen to this. This is the hand of God. Jerome didn't just happen. He was God's tool, born in a bizarro time, in a bizarro place, with incredible linguistic skills, who gets hopscotched all over the globe, so he winds up learning Hebrew from a rabbi, Jew, Jew rabbi who turned Christian, who taught him Hebrew. He had available manuscripts. He worked against challenges and against criticism to produce scriptures. That didn't happen just because Jerome was a guy who was doing it. It happened because God's hand was working in history. So if God has worked to give us scriptures, might I suggest to you, let's read them. Read your Bible. Let's read them and understand them. If Bob wants us to do an action step, we would put it in here. Make a decision right now. I won't let today go by without reading some of my Bible. If you don't have a good readable translation, get one. I don't say throw away your King James. Save it. Use it. If you, it, some people like it. Some people it, it makes sense to them. I will tell you the first King James version of the Bible. Well, we'll get to that when we get to King James. Um, but we have really good scriptures in really good readable language. Get yourself one. If you don't have a message Bible, get one of those. Just to read it and give you some flavor for the way they translated scripture. If your children are old enough to be readers and they don't have a readable Bible, get them one. Third point. Let's store up our treasures in Christ. I'm not saying you can't read other things. I think you can. I think that uh, you should. We need, to, we need to be salt for our culture, so we need to understand our culture. But don't ever let that be our treasure chest. Store up your treasures in Christ. And finally, let's treat others as we wish to be treated. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the joy of, of learning about your hand and the way it's moved in history, what's gotten us here today, Lord, as I go back and, and work through the history of, of your church. It's fascinating for me to see your, your guiding hand and the way uh, hundreds and even over thousands of years ago, so many of the issues we have are issues that others were facing. Uh, thank you for our scriptures the revelation of who you are and how you've worked in history for our salvation. The scriptures that are perfect, that are breathed by you, that, that profit us not only in our salvation, but in our righteousness and in our training and our day-to-day living. It is my prayer that we will spend time in those scriptures and that your spirit will open them to us to reveal to us more about you and your will. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.